0: Praise the Lord. God bless all of you this morning. So good to see you. So good to be here in the presence of the Lord with all of you. Amen. Uh, Let's all stand. I'm excited to see what the Lord has in store here this morning. Amen. We desire His will. We desire to see His, His, uh, His plan manifest in this place today. He is so good to us. We serve such a wonderful, awesome God. Amen. Let's call out to Him for just a few minutes this morning, can we? Jesus, we are so thankful for You. You are so wonderful. You are so beautiful. You are so awesome, so wondrous and glorious, so mighty. Halei Oro Thank You, Jesus, for Your manifest presence here this morning and for this opportunity You've given us today to enter therein. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would take this opportunity seriously, that we would not esteem it lightly, that we would not take it for granted, but that we would press to enter into the presence of God. Hallelujah, Jesus, and that we would receive of You all that You have in store for us, and that we would wait upon You and minister unto You this morning with our worship and with our praise and with our giving of thanks, and in our service to You, our obedience and our submission to the Word of God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Bless the people present here today. Bless those within the sound of my voice. Minister to their needs. Undergird them with strength. Encourage them in the Lord their God this morning, I pray. And above all else, Lord, let Your great and mighty name be glorified in our midst. Let Your great and precious name be lifted up and magnified in this place today. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Praise God, praise God. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We delight ourselves today in the Lord our God. We will rejoice today in the God of our salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your daily provision. Thank you for the earnest of our inheritance, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for giving us your name in water baptism, for saving us from our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. It's time we'll dismiss the youth, the hyphen class. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, all of you, for uh, those that prayed for the district conference. I do believe that the will of God was done in the elections, the passing of resolutions services. Amen. Uh, Thank you to Sister Rudy, those that uh, helped during service uh, this Wednesday. I very much appreciate that. Amen. Review for last week. Last week we talked about the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son's self-determination in that he wanted to live life according to his rules, not dad's. Dad was out of touch. Dad was old and and maybe a little bit senile. He didn't know what he was doing or talking about. Doesn't understand my generation. You can fill in the blank. Uh, People think like this all the time. Maybe even we have once in a while. Safe under rules he disagreed with. And, you know, some people get uh understanding and agreement confused. Uh, because they don't agree with something. They claim that they don't understand and they want you to continue to explain. Uh, but, no, you understand what I'm saying. You just don't agree with it. So, he chafed under these rules. He disagreed with them. He, he, he wanted nothing to do with them. He tried life on his terms, and we discover at the end of it, it led to the loss of absolutely everything. He thought he knew better. He thought he understood the way the world worked, how life was. But he didn't. He found out how life worked almost too late. Too late to salvage anything uh, temporally. But he did manage to salvage that which was most important. His relationship with the Father. He tried life on his terms. It led to him losing everything. It led to a life of misery. We learned about the older son's self-righteousness. That he served his father from a position of duty and obligation. Not out of love. And that is a warning to all of us. Because we can very easily get to the place where we're coming to church because it's our duty. People are expecting us to. We're obligated. And not out of a desire to meet with our Savior. Not out of a desire to serve and to please Jesus. That ought to be our, our, our only motivation. Not primary. Our only motivation is because we love Jesus and we desire to please him. He was angry and felt put out because his faithfulness was not being recognized, while his younger brother's rebellion earned him a a great big celebration. And again, if we're not careful, we can start looking at people. I remember scenarios before my wife and I had kids. I was looking at people all the time. They look at someone funny and they get pregnant. They don't want to get pregnant. They don't want kids. We desperately wanted kids and we couldn't. We can get to the place where... Oh, here's where I was going with that. I remember a scenario. Someone had backslid. She was wanting a she was wanting a husband, so she married someone outside of the church. Backslid for a while. Later on, they repented. They got in church, and uh, everything was great. You know, had kids, had a, a big family, just like she wanted, and she was serving God. Well, there were other people in the, in the church there, ladies who were faithful to God, stayed faithful to God, still single, still wanting a family. And it can be difficult sometimes to look at that scenario. Well, I should have done that. Well, there was was a little bit more behind the scenes going on there than just that. It wasn't all peaches and cream, I'll tell you that much. Uh, There was a lot of strife and struggle in between there. But in any case, we can look at these scenarios and say, well, faithfulness isn't worth it. I'll just go get what I want and then I can repent later. No. No, folks. That's not the way to do it. Because you can't control that path. You can't control how far you're going to go. And you can't control what's going to happen to you while on that path. The older brother was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And we saw the father's love. He loved both sons while recognizing the errors of both. He wasn't blind to the condition of his sons. He understood, but he loved them anyway. He allowed both sons to make their own decisions. Even though certainly in one case, it was a decision that was disastrous for the younger son. He let him make it anyway. He desired to reconcile with both sons and was the initiator. Even though it was his sons that were at fault. He was the one that approached them. He was the one that came to them. Now the younger son did come back. But the father was waiting. Every day he was waiting for that to to happen, for him to come back. And when he did, he ran to him. And he restored his identity. Not as a servant, but as a son. He demonstrates to us that God wants to reconcile everyone to Himself through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and 10 says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. 2 Corinthians 5:18 and 19 says this, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Amen. What an awesome hope we have, that where we were once far away, we can be drawn nigh by the blood of Christ. Praise God. Our daily devotions. The parable of the prodigal son is given by Jesus and it's bundled together with two other parables. The parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin. These parables focus on three occurrences. Something of value being lost. The efforts of the searcher to find the lost object. And the subsequent celebration when that which was lost is finally found. The value of the coin and the sheep were apparent to the audience. They understood that... But they were hard-pressed to find value in the lost son. The reason for that, in day one, the son's request for his inheritance was absolutely improper. He was saying, in effect, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. That, that's what he was saying. He should have been punished for making such a request. But not only was he unpunished, his father granted the request. The devotion talks about financial stewardship. Financial stewardship is absolutely biblical. And it's something that needs to be taught and modeled in our churches, our homes. Amen. Day two, suffering can serve God's purpose when we allow our sufferings to lead us to the feet of Jesus. And it's very difficult to take that approach when we're in the middle of suffering. Nevertheless, that is exactly how we are to look at things. In all things, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. May God use whatever comes into our lives to lead us closer to Him. Amen. Day 3. The prodigal should have been dead to his father because of his most improper request, his absolute lack of decorum, protocol, common sense, respect. And yet the father waited daily for his son's return. When he did approach, the son should not have been allowed to return. But his return was not only welcomed, but it was celebrated. We often believe we know what's best and what's right, but if our knowledge contradicts the express will and commandment of God, it will lead us into ruin. Folks, the Bible does not say in vain our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We cannot know it. We think there are situations, I can think of a couple just off the top of my head. I knew I was right, I knew it. Everyone else was telling me I was crazy. But they were crazy. I knew I was right. Till I wasn't. And afterward, you can look back on it and say, "Good grief, what was I thinking? How could I have believed it that that was the best way to go?" My heart lied to me. If, because of our rebellion, we're led away from God, if we acknowledge our sin, if we will approach our Father in humility and in repentance, He will accept us back. Praise God. And He will do it with open arms and with thanksgiving. Day four, while Jesus wants to forgive and reconcile, some of His children, unfortunately, do not. As the people of God, we have got to go out of our way to ensure that we're always extending the offer of forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing to all people everywhere. That's the will of God, folks. Jesus died for all people, not just you and not just me. He died for everybody. He died for the African, he died for the Alaskan, he died for the Norwegian, the German. He died for the male and the female, the young boy and the old man. Everybody. He died for the homosexual. He died for the transgender. Amen. Day five. In this parable, the older brother represented the Pharisees, the younger brother the sinners, and the father symbolizes Jesus Christ. Do we place the same value on those things that Jesus places value on? Day 5 sounded a call, at least for me, to re examine my priorities. Do they line up with His priorities? Do my values line up with His values? Amen. Our lesson for today comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Today we're going to be talking about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19 starts with this. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Sounds pretty good. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. That doesn't sound as good. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. Clara was an accountant and Paul was a mechanic. They fell deeply in love and got married. For nine years they longed to grow their family of two into a family of three, but could not. When they realized they would not have children biologically, they adopted a baby boy they named Stephen Paul. Stephen grew up, graduated from high school, and enrolled in college, but his dreams of a career right out of college would have to wait. He did not have enough money to pay his tuition. Regretfully, he withdrew from college after just one semester. While Steve was growing up, his mechanic father taught him how to work on cars. Steve wasn't very interested in the cars themselves, but he was intrigued by the electronics that made them work. Every weekend, Paul took his son to the junkyard where they rummaged for spare parts. Steve's interest in electronics continued to grow as the days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years. As Steve's interest grew, Paul opened his garage to his son to give him a space to experiment on electronics. Seven Houses Down, an engineer for Hewlett Packard heard about Steve's interest and acumen in electronics. The neighbor, who said that? <laughs> <laughs> The neighbor brought Steve gadgets and gizmos to play with. His fourth-grade teacher did the same. (laughs) They were amazed at this young boy's interest in all things tech. Eventually, their engineer neighbor invited Steve to join the Hewlett-Packard Explorers Club, a group of students who met weekly in the HP cafeteria. There, Steve saw his first desktop computer. It weighed around 40 pounds. But in Steve's words, quote, it was a thing of beauty, unquote. Once, when the group needed parts, they did not have Steve thumbed through the phone book and called the CEO of HP to ask for them. They talked for 20 minutes. By the end of that call, the CEO offered Steve an internship. By the time he turned 23 years old, Steve Jobs was worth $1 million. In 1984, he designed the first Macintosh computer. When he died at the age of 56, his net worth totaled over $10 billion. Steve Jobs began working with his blue-collar father in a garage and built an empire worth billions of dollars. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of Apple computers. Rags-to-riches stories like these inspire us to continue working hard and dreaming harder to see our dreams blossom into reality. These stories are not limited to modern times. They happened all throughout history, even in the Bible. Sometimes these stories do not have a happy ending until after the story has been told. Amen. I alluded to this earlier, but have you ever wondered at the seeming unfairness in the world? The world is most certainly not a fair place to be in. It's not. I don't care if you're a Christian or an atheist. It's not always fair. You can do your best. You can put your nose to the grindstone. You can do everything right, be a good steward of your finances, and still end up living paycheck to paycheck. Some people, they just swing through life wherever they decide to wake up in the morning. And they end up being billionaires. Somehow. They just attract money. If that's your definition of success. And then you've got all kinds of things in between. I know there are no good people biblically, but you know what I'm saying when I say that bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Amen. Rich and powerful men and women exist in the world who hate God. Most probably, I haven't taken a survey of all the billionaires, but I would imagine most of them are not Christian. Probably the majority. And yet, They're very influential. They're very powerful in this world. There are poor and afflicted men and women who love and serve God. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Is that a question we even need to be asking? Is it something worth answering? In the account we read in Scripture today, we see the life circumstances of two people. Lazarus and the rich man. Which one is more blessed? Which life would you rather live? Now, of course, we know the answer. We know the end of the story. Oh, I'd rather be Lazarus. That's everybody's answer right because we like where Lazarus ends up but what was his path in getting there what what path did Lazarus have to take to get to Abraham's bosom that's easy to overlook and it honestly it should be overlooked Because of the end result. But folks, when you're sitting at the gate, full of sores, weak from malnutrition, starving, it's a little bit harder to see clearly then, isn't it? It's a little bit more difficult to see the end result that we're working toward. Do we live our lives like Lazarus was more blessed? Do we? We know He was. We know that's the correct answer. But do our attitudes and our values line up with that? Are we willing to go through that, if necessary, to attain heaven, to attain eternity with Jesus Christ? Would we envy the state of Lazarus and look on the rich man with pity? Because that's the proper response, isn't it? We should be pitying the rich man because of where he ends up. Nah. Maybe not pity, but I'm not going to get into all that. Mostly, our our idea of that is flipped around. When we think of blessing, what's the first thing that pops into our mind? Yeah, a little bit extra cash, right? That's the first thing that pops into our mind when we think of blessing, the blessings of God. God has blessed me. That's the first thing that pops into our minds in our Western culture. Why is that? Because that's the very definition of our culture's success. The more money you got, the more stuff you have, the more successful you are. Period, your personal life can be an absolute dumpster fire. That doesn't matter. You can have a You can have a whole uh landfill full of broken relationships behind you. No one cares. Oh, look at how look at how powerful that guy is. Look at how successful he's become. I told you this story before. i It's just such a perfect example. I worked at a manufactured home company in Worthington, Minnesota for a while. Uh, and the plant manager there, I won't say his name. I can see his face as plain as day. But he was, he was a company man. 100%. And nothing wrong with being a company man. I mean, While we're there, we need to be doing our best, right? That's a good witness. But, he was obsessed with the company. The company was his God. He lost his children. He lost his wife to this company. When he took vacation, you know what he was doing on vacation? He was going to different places and selling homes. On his own dime. That's what he did. He loved that company. That was his heart and soul. And then when the company didn't need him anymore, he got the boot. No retirement. No severance. Nothing. That's why I'll continue to use that. It's such a perfect example of what happens when we place anything above God. You climb any other ladder than... uh, this Christian walk, and you're going to end up completely and utterly bankrupt. And yet, we look at the rich man and we desire to be that. Why can't we have both? I can be the rich man and go to heaven. Oh yeah, you can. Absolutely you can. Nothing wrong with being rich. Again, Keep your priorities straight. Once you are rich, can God take that back? Is He allowed to do that? If He's allowed to do that and you mean that, you're good to go. Your priorities are great. Keep God first in your life. But if you have a little bit of twinge, a little hesitation, check your spirit. Get right with God. Nothing can come before Jesus Christ. Do we make decisions in our lives like Lazarus is in the preferred position? Again, do our values line up with Jesus Christ's values? Do we see reality the way He sees it? Or do we have this warped, distorted image of what's good and what's not good? We look at this story and say, Lazarus isn't in a good place here. And in some cases, probably not. I wouldn't choose to live like this. I don't think any of us would. But is he really in a bad spot? I'll leave that for you to answer. Okay, Lazarus. He's dirt poor. He has a parcel shirt on his back. Some rags. He's diseased. He's weak and malnourished. You know, his name means God will help. Are we seeing a lot of help here? It's okay. We don't see a lot of help here, do we? Where's the help coming from? What kind of help is he receiving? <laughs> he died alone, unclaimed, unwanted. He was probably thrown in a, in a pit along with all the other beggars. The rich man was filthy rich, lived sumptuously every day. Every day, sumptuously. Enjoyed all the best that life had to offer. If he wanted to travel, he could travel. If he wanted to get into philanthropy, he could do that. He could do whatever he wanted. He was respected. Maybe even envied. Maybe feared. And as a man, they say, we'd rather be feared than loved. I think that's probably true. Respect is higher on our list than love. That's why the Bible tells the women to respect your husband. And we are required to love our wives. Amen. He died amidst pomp and circumstance, flags at half-mast, parades and ceremonies, eulogies for hours. The Queen of England. You couldn't help but catch some part of that funeral. It went on for days. I doubt my funeral is going to be a solid hour. People are going to be, hey, I got places to be here. Because I, I won't have anywhere to be. <laughs> I'm right where I'm going to stay. <laughs> so we see the dichotomy here. And it's set up that way on purpose. Lazarus is the poorest of the poor. The rich man is the richest of the rich. Everything life had, he had at his fingertips. The poor man had absolutely nothing but misery and torment. And then the great reversal. The poor beggar opened his eyes in Abraham's bosom, an eternity of comfort and peace and love, while the rich man opened his eyes in hell. Both realized instantly, I believe, and with complete understanding where they were and where they would remain. I find it interesting to note that the rich man could see the people in heaven. He could see who was there. What if part of the torment of hell is being able to see everyone in heaven, enjoying everything in heaven for all of eternity, knowing they could have been there too, and they never will be? They will never set foot there, not ever. In life, the rich man valued his portfolio more than he did his own soul. I'm sure at this point, he would have given literally anything. He would have probably switched places with the beggar and lived his whole life that way if he had the choice. But he doesn't have a choice anymore. He would have given anything, I have no doubt, anything at all, if he could have just had another shot. But all his shots were used up. It's all over now. The rich man would know it was his decisions that placed him there, and there was no more chance to make it right. And see, that's the thing about this. You know, our society likes to... There was even a, a joke in the lesson today about... Talking about hell, you know, the Bible doesn't joke about hell. There's nothing funny about it. There's nothing. Uh, I mean, it's it's as serious as you could get, because there's 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 no going back from that, folks. We do something here today. It might be serious. I get convicted of mass murder, I get put on death row. Yeah, that's pretty serious. But I can still come back from that. I can repent. I can get right with God. After they execute me, I can go to heaven. So yeah, that's serious. I'm going to lose my life, but I gain eternity. If I lose eternity, there's nothing left. There's there's nowhere, else. there's no recourse. There's nothing there's no second option here. If I end up there, that is it. And I'm going to be there. I'm not going to be there. But, those that are there, they're there with full realization. Up here, they could, they could lie to themselves, they could lie to everyone else, and I could convince myself. There is no God. I can persuade myself. I can... I can line up all of these really flimsy, stupid arguments, but that's all I got, so that's where I'm at. God doesn't exist. All this came by chance. I'm just chance, and when I die, it's annihilation. I just, I'm gone. So I don't have to account for anything that I do here. I can persuade myself that that's true, but when I end up there, That all goes away. I can't lie to myself anymore. I'm not going to be crazy down there. I'm not going to be psycho down there. I'm going to have full, clear realization of what I did here. And that's what put me here. God doesn't put people in hell. It's not His desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He hung on a cross for crying out loud. What more does He need to do? Except take away your free will and force you to serve him. Most people they don't want that either. But that would be a nice easy solution. Just everybody serve me. You don't have a choice. No, I don't want that. Oh, I'll give you a choice then. Well, why would he send me to hell? Our choices place us there. Our choices place us in heaven. God gives us the option. He gives us the chance. He's opened the door. If we want it, we can have salvation. If we don't want it, we don't have to have it. But just understand what that means. If you don't choose Jesus Christ, then you pay for those sins yourself. Someone's paying, folks. The sin is going to be paid for by someone. I've elected. I want Jesus to pay those sins. I don't want to pay them. And He graciously did. You're not going to fool yourself down there. You're not going to convince yourself of anything other than your absolute guilt before God. The greatest torment, though, will not be hell's unquenchable flames or the memory of messages preached and altars ignored. It will be the great gulf fixed, separating us eternally from God, knowing it will never, ever be breached. People reject God their whole life, want nothing to do with Him. Until then, they're going to want everything to do with Him. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late. Some points to consider from this lesson. God is more interested in our holiness than in our happiness. We know that rings true. We don't always like to hear it. Especially as new converts or as kids. The immature attitude, the childish attitude is, I just want to be happy. There are many adults with that same idea. Why can't I just be happy? Well, nothing wrong with being happy. I like being happy. But happiness is a choice, folks. I can choose to be happy in any situation. I don't need to wait for circumstances to line up and all the planets and stars to align before I can have a chance of happiness. Try having joy. Joy, folks. Happiness is fleeting. It's momentary. It's going to pass. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. That comes from God. That's a gift of the Holy Ghost, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace. I can have peace in the midst of absolute chaos. My spirit can be at peace. I can be at rest. We need to adopt the same perspective. If God is more interested in my holiness than in my happiness, then what ought I focus on? How about both? Let's focus on holiness, folks, without which no man can see God. I want to be holy as He is holy. Amen. Health and wealth do not necessarily mark God's approval, and poverty and sickness do not necessarily mark God's disapproval. Again, it's a matter of perspective. Do we have a temporal perspective or an eternal perspective? If I go through the worst scenarios and situations down here so that I can attain heaven, is that worth it? Ho ho, you better believe it is. These light afflictions, which are but for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight and glory. Folks, anything that happens down here cannot compare to what we are to receive there, it can't compare. Literally, cannot compare. I know it seems like a big deal down here. I'm not making light of it. I'm not. There are situations down here that are absolutely horrible. But compared to what we are going to receive, and that forever, it can't compare. We cannot judge our spiritual reality based on temporal circumstances. And you cannot judge somebody else's spiritual reality based on temporal circumstances. People may be going through a tough time right now. Well, obviously they got sin in their lives. Not obvious at all. Maybe God's testing them. Maybe God's refining them. There could be all kinds of other reasons. And it's not for us to judge what those reasons are. If you think there's sin in that person's life, then folks, you better be praying for them. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Pray for them. Where do we get off? Where do we get this idea that we have the right to sit ourselves up as judge, jury, and executioner over somebody else. Somebody else we hardly even know. Certainly don't understand. Where does that idea come from? Not the Bible. Not God. God is our judge, folks. Let Him do it. I think He's probably pretty capable of doing that all on His own. Thank you. He doesn't need you, he doesn't need me, he doesn't even need my input. I don't think he's asked me one time, Bishop, what should I do with this guy? Not one time. He hasn't consulted me at all. There's a good reason for that. He don't need my input. He's never needed my input. He's got this, folks. He's totally got it. The blessings of God may take forms other than financial. (gasps) What? I hear this a lot. And generally, it's true. I mean, you give sacrificially in the offering and God will bless you. Yes, He will. Absolutely. That's biblical. That's scriptural. But that doesn't mean you're going to get a paycheck in the mail the next day. That's not what that means. It could mean He's going to rebuke the devourer. I have rarely gotten a check in the mail when I give sacrificially, but I've had tires that last 75,000 miles. I've had appliances that last, they're still good. We got them when we were married. There's many forms of blessing. Bringing people into your life. Relationships. God most certainly does bless me, not always financially. But folks, that's not what we're focused on. I know that God's going to provide all my needs. He wants me to give something in the offering. It's His money. I'm going to give it. And God will take care of me somehow. It may not be getting that money back. It may be something else. It could be a raise at work. It could be a discount on something we really need. Let God bless you the way He wants to. Don't pigeonhole Him into, I need, I need some more money. You don't need more money. You need more Jesus. People worried about losing jobs. Well, what am I going to do? I've got to pay the bills. Your job is not your provider. God is using that to provide for you. But He doesn't need that. He could he could use some other avenue. He could even do it directly if he so chose. Jesus is our provider. Jesus is our healer. He's our exceeding great reward. Seek Jesus. Have a relationship with Him. And don't worry about all these other things. And don't worry about situations going on in other people's lives. If you think you got a word from the Lord. Give it according to the will of God. They ask for help. Help them out. If you see a need, try to meet it. But don't come down on people. Don't judge people. Love people. Minister to people. That's what Jesus did for me. He didn't judge me. He's going to be our judge someday. Absolutely. But He didn't judge me when I came to Him you dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. You knew better. You should have made better choices. Now look where you're at. He didn't do any of that. Yeah, he's absol- that would have been absolutely true. I did know better. I was taught better. And now I'm suffering the consequences for my poor choices. But He didn't dredge any of that up. He forgave me. He fixed things in my life. He fixed me. He's still fixing me. Thank God. So let's do that with others. He did it for me. Can we do that with other people? I pray so. This world is not our home, folks. Thank God. The older I get, the more I experience... The less this world has to offer. I I just want to go home. I just want to see Jesus. I can't wait. I'm here by His will. I'm not going to suicide or anything like that. Uh, don't worry about that. But, but as soon as He's ready to take me, I'm ready. I'm not going to fight that decision. I'm ready to go. He can get me anytime He wants. We ought not envy the prosperous and the influential sinner. Someone disobeys God, someone's in rebellion to God, and it seems like they just keep getting more and more and more. We ought not envy that individual. Because we can see their end. We know where they're heading. And if they don't change something, they're done. They're done for all eternity. So rather than envy them, we ought to pray for them. We ought to pity them. We ought not judge the poor or afflicted. Remember Job's friends. Job's friends knew there was sin in Job's life. No question. No, no moment of hesitation. God's curse is on you because of sin. There's two statements wrong with that. God's curse wasn't on him, and there was no sin. We can't look at people's lives. We can't, look, we can't take a momentary snapshot of someone's life and think we know that person. That is simply not fair. I tell you what, there are moments in my life if you took a snapshot of that, you wouldn't want me anywhere near you. I just banged my thumb with a hammer. Probably not my best moment right there. the biblical Christian is blessed no matter their temporal position and the sinner is cursed no matter their temporal position we've got to understand that we've got to understand that it doesn't matter where I'm at in life if I'm serving Jesus with my life I'm adhering myself I'm submitting myself to the authority of scripture to those authorities in my life I'm moving forward in His will and plan for my life. I'm blessed. I may be living paycheck to paycheck. I may have two, three jobs just trying to make ends meet. But I'm blessed, folks. I have Jesus as my Savior. I have a relationship, a covenant relationship with Him. And no matter what goes on in my life, I can lean on Him for strength, for guidance. I can enter into a place of prayer with Him. And I can bask in His presence. And I can feel His love. And I can communicate my love for Him. What an awesome thing that we have here. The most financially prosperous atheist has nothing. Nothing of value. He thinks he does. She thinks they do. But at the end of the day, what do they have? They get to the top of that ladder. Their friends are only there for one reason. Most of their family members are hanging around for one reason, waiting for you to die. So I can get some of that. There's no love there. There's no relationship there, generally. I'm sure there are exceptions. For their sake, I hope there are some exceptions. But we are blessed, folks. And it doesn't matter how much money I have in the bank. It doesn't matter what size my house is, what kind of car I drive. I am blessed. I'm blessed because I have Jesus as my Savior. I have a covenant relationship with Him. And someday, whatever else happens down here, I have an inheritance there that I will enjoy forever. Forever. And all of the things that happen down here, they're not going to matter anymore. Lazarus, he doesn't regret anything. The rich man, he regrets everything. This rich man's story has already been told, but ours has not. The rich man cannot make heaven his home. But we may, because we still have today, to choose to live for God. The most important decision we will make in our lives has nothing to do with the neighborhood we move into, the college we enroll in, the car we choose to drive... Or even the man or woman we choose to marry. Although that's very important too. The most important lasting decision we will make is to live for God. That decision brings the promise of abundant life here and eternal life there. There is no greater choice than to choose to live for God. If you haven't already made that choice, make it today. Choose to serve Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, I'm so thankful that one day You found me. You approached me. You offered me a covenant relationship with You. You offered to pay the just punishment of my sins Yourself. You offered to establish an everlasting relationship with me. You called me by name. Oh, hallelujah. I am so thankful for that day. I'm so thankful for every day that I've served you, every day that I've moved forward in you, every day that I've had communion with you. I look forward to a day where I will not see you through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I'll hear your voice. I'll see you as you are. Hallelujah, Jesus. That is what we live for. That is the hope that we have. I'm thankful for the hope that you've given us. I'm thankful for all of the many blessings the provisions, the healings, the restitutions that You give us down here. But I am so thankful for the hope that we have in heaven, in glory. Thank You, Jesus, for every blessing that You bless us with, every provision wherewith You provide all of our needs. Bless the remainder of Your service here today, I pray. And let Your name continue to be glorified in this. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. You're dismissed. We'll be back at a quarter till.